Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, socially distancing from the borough of Queens. I'm Adam Feuerstein, still isolating in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, weathering the pandemic in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is Thursday, July 23rd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, we'll speak with Kate Bingham, a veteran UK venture capitalist, about her new role overseeing the UK government's efforts to develop and produce COVID-19 vaccines. Next, Meg Terrell, CNBC's senior health and science reporter, joins us to talk about how the coronavirus crisis has changed how she does her job. Finally, Stats Liz Cooney calls in to share a DNA detective story that pairs cutting-edge science with Civil War-era vaccines. But first, a word from our sponsor. Imagine a world where any disease-causing gene could be silenced. Many say that's impossible, impractical, and unrealistic. But at Alnylam, we believe the RNAi therapeutics we've pioneered have limitless possibilities. We're tackling genetic, infectious, cardiometabolic, CNS, and ocular diseases, where this new class of medicines has the potential to improve millions of lives. Learn more about the future of RNAi therapeutics at alnylam.com slash future. That's A-L-N-N-Y-L-A-M dot com forward slash F-U-T-U-R-E. In normal times, Kate Bingham is a UK venture capitalist. She's one of five partners at the venture firm SV Health Ventures, where she founded the $300 million Dementia Discovery Fund, which, as the name implies, focuses on the development of new medicines to treat age-related dementia. But these are not normal times, and so in May, Bingham stepped back from her VC work to take on another role. She's now chair of the UK government's COVID-19 vaccine task force. In this new quasi-governmental job, Bingham reports directly to Prime Minister Boris Johnson. She's helping to coordinate the UK COVID-19 vaccine efforts, much like former GlaxoSmithKline executive Monsef Slaoui is doing here in the United States as the chief advisor to Operation Warp Speed. Adam and our stat colleague Matt Herper caught up with Bingham to discuss the latest in COVID-19 vaccines, including recent developments about the vaccine being developed by AstraZeneca and Oxford University. Here's that interview. Kate, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Adam and Matt. We've seen data for several new COVID-19 vaccine candidates over the past two weeks. Monday, we saw results from the vaccine being developed by AstraZeneca and Oxford University. What do those results mean? So the data that's come out from AstraZeneca, BioNTech, Moderna are basically all the early data to show what the immune response has been to those vaccines before we see the full data on the large phase three efficacy studies. They take the neutralizing antibodies from people, subjects who have received two doses of these different vaccines, and then they see whether or not those neutralizing assays can completely kill live COVID virus. And in all three cases, including in Oxford, they were able to show that after two doses, yes, they were able to kill live COVID virus. Um, And more recently, with the Oxford data, they showed some pretty interesting T-cell responses as well. So in your role, you've had the opportunity to think quite a bit about how this will all play out. So let's take a step back. So what do you think the world looks like in a year? In a year's time, I think we will have multiple vaccine candidates. I think of the sort of the vaccine candidate modalities in in sort of four buckets. The two buckets, which are the most advanced, so the viral-based vectors and the mRNA, uh, DNA-based vaccines, which are most advanced, but about which we know the least. And then you've got the more established vaccines, which are the adjuvanted proteins and the whole inactivated um, virus vaccines. 
and those are coming through a bit later than the um, the hairy scary novel ones, but they are more understood as vaccine formats and and vaccine modalities. So in a year. I think we should have vaccines from each of those four modalities with clinical efficacy data, safety data, and I hope approvals that can be deployed um, around the world. I wouldn't bet on which ones look better than others at the moment. And our strategy has been to build a broad, diverse portfolio of the most promising vaccines because we don't know which is going to be important. We could end up with several vaccines with different safety and efficacy profiles, and there's no precedent for that. How will we manage it? So one issue that we face globally at the moment is that we don't have any consistent assays across the different uh, vaccine trials. So one thing that, again, in a year's time, I would hope, is we've got some consistent benchmark assays which are standardised against which all trials will assess the, the effectiveness of their different vaccines. So both in the US and in the UK, uh, vaccine hesitancy has been a big problem. And the speed at which things are moving could make some people reluctant to take a COVID-19 vaccine. How do we prevent that? Well, the first thing is to reinforce that the speed at which these vaccines are being developed is not shortcutting in any way anything to do with patient safety. So there is nothing, no standards that are being dropped. The regulators are just as tough to ensure that anything that is put into people are safe um, and that the right level of evaluation has taken place before anyone is dosed. The reason the trials have been uh, compressed and accelerated is because we're able to run a lot of these studies um, in parallel as opposed to sequentially. So Never in my history have I ever known of a trial, for example, like Oxford, reporting their phase one data yesterday, but at the same time, they've largely enrolled their full phase three efficacy study, and they're well underway in the manufacturing of the bulk scale and the scale up of their vaccine all at the same time. This hasn't happened before. But because this is such a serious global pandemic, governments um, around the world have supported that at-risk investment to accelerate the development of these vaccines so that we can make them, we can push the clinical development as quick as possible, but not compromise patient safety. I feel like when the lay public talks about a vaccine, they expect a magic bullet. But a vaccine might not have 100% efficacy. What can we expect and what are the odds that we won't get a vaccine at all? I have been messaging quite strongly um, to the UK government and to the media that we should not expect a fully sterilizing vaccine to come out first out of the box. It's possible, but I think that would be amazing achievement if that was to happen. I've been cautioning that it's more likely that we will find a vaccine that reduces the severity of symptoms rather than just completely uh, stops any level of infection. I think based on the data we've seen, first of all, these look like they're safe vaccines and we're seeing levels of, of neutralizing antibody, which is definitely gives cause for optimism. So I think the chances of not having anything is pretty slim. But I would say that because I am optimistic. So, Kate, you mentioned that, you know, facilitating worldwide access to a COVID-19 vaccine or vaccines is one of your priorities. How challenging will that be? What we've done where we can have influence over the vaccine themselves, such as in the case of Oxford, we've just put it into the contract. So we have said to AstraZeneca and Oxford, 
that they are required to ensure that this vaccine is distributed internationally. So it's a commitment. It's in line with what the government, the UK, is trying to achieve, that any successful vaccine is distributed broadly around the world. Then the question is, well, how can we ensure that uh, takes place also with, with vaccines which we may have less influence over? And the, the way we're tackling that is where we can identify companies developing vaccines where we can support um, scale up and manufacturing, we will then be exploring capacities that go beyond what we need in the UK so that we can then ensure that those vaccines, again, can get distributed uh, more broadly. Another fear is that nationalist tendencies could lead some countries to try to keep doses of a vaccine for themselves. How do we prevent that? With difficulty, I think you can lead by example and um, try and encourage countries to recognise that even if they protect their own population, they're not going to um, solve the global pandemic. And so it is essential that all of us actually work together to try and ensure that both low-income countries and middle-income countries also get access to to these vaccines. So, Kate, I'm particularly interested in your UK perspective on the US vaccine development efforts, you know, programs like Operation Warp Speed. You know, how similar or different are those from what's taking place uh, in the UK? I mean, Warp Speed is great. I talk to Monsef regularly. I think he's completely fantastic. He's exactly the right sort of person um, to be leading um, the Warp Speed effort. He knows everything about vaccines and he knows everybody. So that's a pretty good place to start. He's also got a large budget, which is key to kickstart some of these vaccines. And there is no doubt that the support that the US has given to Warp Speed is broadly supporting countries around the world because there will be plenty of low-income countries and middle-income countries which will be dependent on seeing the data that's coming out of the US to then help inform their own regulatory programs and, and filings. So The US checkbook is a bit larger than ours, but I'm not constrained by cash per se, actually. So the areas I think were similar. We for sure um, share a view about um, vaccination strategy. This is not a political matter. And I think it's very hard um, for politicians to recognise that because they want to be able to stand up in whichever country they come from and say to their citizens who have voted them into office that they are going to offer vaccines for everybody. But actually, that's just not practical, nor is it, I think, ethical or correct. We have to recognise the risk benefit of these vaccines and obviously prioritise those who are most at need. Thanks so much for being here, Kate. Excellent. Thank you. The coronavirus outbreak has dominated the news these past few months and changed the conversation around just about everything in American life. It has also changed how the news gets made. Meg Terrell is CNBC's senior health and science reporter, and she's been interviewing CEOs, scientists, and public health officials about the toll of the pandemic and the many efforts underway to stop it. She joins us now. Meg, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Happy to be with you. So, Meg, in normal times, television journalism involves sets and crews and face-to-face interviews. A lot of that hasn't been practical since the coronavirus took hold in the U.S. So how has your job changed over the past five months? <laughs> My job has become uh, very lonely, <laughs> like everybody's, I'm sure, except for the interactions we do like this. Um, my last day in the studio was, I believe, March 
18th. And uh, we were kind of trying to figure out, could we broadcast from our houses? And so we got these systems that are called Padcasters. And essentially, it's just an iPad with some cool software, some broadcasting software, a cool lens on it, and it's on a tripod. And I'm looking at it right now in my studio. And I remember like taking the big backpack with the the Padcaster and taking some of my TV clothes, uh, which we keep at work, and thinking, oh, I'll be back. Like, I didn't even take my laptop. I just took the iPad that I use. And I never went back into the office. I tried it out at home and it worked. And the news at that point was just getting more and more serious uh, about the spread of the infection. And I'm on the East Coast in New Jersey, like right outside New York City. So it was especially scary where, where I am. And so we all just started broadcasting from home. But my days are busier than ever. I mean, I wake up, there's news coming, and I'm just getting ready as fast as I can. I have to be presentable every day, which is I don't get that perk of working from home. <laughs> um, and then I just go for sometimes, you know, 12 hours. Um, and I'm like up in my little room trying to hide from my toddler and just talking into a, an iPad. And I guess the world is can watch. Uh, but it, you know, I'm just feeling like I'm sitting in this room. So let's take people behind the scenes of how their news gets made. Let's say it's new data on a potential coronavirus vaccine. A scientific paper gets published and you read it. And then what happens? Oh, it's probably similar to what happens for you guys. It's nice if we get some time to digest the information before we have to either for you guys click the publish button or for me, literally look into a camera and and start explaining the data. Sometimes you don't get that time, like with the Oxford AstraZeneca data in the Lancet earlier this week. But essentially, I am just, you know, reading the information if I don't get it in advance as fast as I possibly can. Uh, For these, you know, vaccine candidates, I am looking for (laughs) the neutralizing antibody titers and in the comparisons to the convalescent plasma uh, levels and trying to parse that out as quickly as I can and looking for information about safety, side effects, and just trying to explain it as clearly, accurately, and um, and precisely as I can on live television in real time. <laughs> it's easy. <laughs> yeah. Part of your job is interviewing CEOs of the world's biggest drug companies, which was the case before the pandemic and is obviously true now. Do you feel like their tones have shifted now that the attention of the world is on them and their work? Yes, a little bit. I think the industry collectively sees this as an opportunity to regain the respect of the world. They see this as a way to show the value of what the industry brings. And I think we can kind of see that in the increased number of ads from the group Pharma (laughs) that at least run on television uh, and probably elsewhere, showing how much work they're doing. So I do think that you know CEOs and, and other executives are really trying to embrace that part of their work. I mean, and they're rightfully proud of the work that they're doing. But at the same time, you know, I'm with CNBC. I you know have an investor audience, and I think when the executives are talking to me, they know that that's the audience. So they have that pressure coming from that different side, and they have to kind of weigh the you know the good they're doing for society versus the the money that they're going to make from it, and. A lot of people see those as opposed to one another, and a lot of people argue they shouldn't be opposed to one another, but that's another debate. (laughs) So, Meg, I think we've seen several instances where, you know, the entire market moves on news related to either drug development or vaccine development uh, with COVID-19. And I wonder if that sort of plays into the way you do your reporting. (laughs) Well, 
maybe this is the wrong way to approach it, but I don't feel like my brain is capable of thinking that hard about that many effects. All I am trained to do is to uh, look at scientific data and try to uh, pull out the parts that you know, are, are most important in terms of suggesting, you know, whether something is safe and might be effective and only looking at it really from the like health and medical perspective. You know, then sometimes our anchors will ask me, well, you know, why is this affecting this other biotech stock? Uh, and that's pretty much as far as I'm able to go. I don't know enough about the airlines, how they trade, uh, casinos, you know, everything else in the economy. I don't have enough knowledge about them to even think about that when I'm looking at the information. So I basically just try to stay as purely focused on the science and medical aspects of it as I can. And then luckily we have this amazing team of other people who who understands the rest of the market well and then explains it. And I just focus on what I understand. So a lot of people who listen to this podcast have jobs in and around the world of life sciences. If they are like us, that means they've been fielding lots of questions from friends and family about the coronavirus crisis and when there might be treatments and vaccines. Meg, how do you handle those kind of questions? It can be tempting because we're spending all of our time in this world to sometimes, th- you know, be in a position of of giving almost medical advice. And I'm always thinking, oh, wait, I'm not a doctor. Um, but I think about the doctors that I've talked with. I spend literally all of my time thinking about how close we are to a vaccine or where different treatments stand. So um, I-, I give the same answers that I give on television uh, when people ask me, you know, which drugs are thought to be the most promising. I mean, I cite the data from the experts that I talk to. Um, and then I just listen because I actually find a lot of my friends and, and relatives, you know, have their own opinions and everybody is paying so much attention to this story that it's just really interesting. I mean, they'll know things that I won't know sometimes because they're reading different news sources. And so it's the world is focused on our beat right now. It's weird experience. Um, but it, it's kind of cool, too, to see how different people interpret the information around us. So it seems like there's incremental news on treatments and potential vaccines for COVID-19 basically every day. But what's the next major development that you're looking out for that you think will really kind of drive the narrative in the next few months? I think there are two. One is that next week, the first phase three trials of vaccines are starting from Moderna and probably Pfizer, since they've said they're starting it by the end of this month. And it's what, uh, July 23rd. So we're going to see the phase three trials start, and then we're going to see hopefully how quickly they enroll. Um, And then Pfizer's saying, you know, by September, October, they should have data. So the infection rates right now, of course, are high enough that if they're enrolling in the right places, um, they should get data pretty quickly. And then the other thing that I'm watching that I think has fallen a little bit out of the, the limelight recently although I think it will get more attention soon, are the the antibody treatments. Uh, We know that Regeneron is in late-stage clinical trials. uh, And just yesterday, David Ho, the famous AIDS researcher at Columbia, published a paper in Nature with his own antibody work, um, where they're actually digging through um, samples from people who recovered from COVID-19 at Columbia to find the best antibodies. uh, And they say they found new ones. So there's so much work going on. And this could be an area uh, that both provides a new treatment Um, but also could provide a prevention um, for COVID-19. And I'm really, really interested to see how those trials go, particularly the one that Regeneron's running uh, for prevention in household contacts of people who have COVID-19, so family members, people who live uh, in the same household. That's just really fascinating to me, and I I really hope it works. Meg, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, guys. 
For this next segment, we're going to talk about a different global scourge, smallpox, and the curious tale of a 160-year-old vaccination campaign. Smallpox was finally eradicated in 1980 thanks to a successful vaccine. But more than a century earlier, during the Civil War, doctors used leather vaccination kits to try to inoculate soldiers and citizens from the disease. Vaccines were made not in labs or factories then, but instead were grown in a human chain of people. Now, a discovery at a Philadelphia Museum of Medical History is shining light on those Civil War-era vaccines and how they provided protection. Joining us to discuss this is our stat colleague, Liz Cooney. Liz, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So Liz, there's a remarkable backstory behind this discovery. As you reported, it started at the Muter Museum in Philadelphia, where the director was giving a tour to a new employee and spotted something at a place while opening a drawer. Tell us more about that. Sure, that's right. I mean, it is a discovery that almost didn't happen. Anna Doty, who's the museum's acting director now, told me her boss was looking for phlebotomy instruments when he was taking around a new employee. But when he pulled open a drawer, spotted these leather kits holding lancets and tin boxes and glass slides, he knew immediately that they were vaccination kits. And he knew they could be dangerous if they held actual smallpox not the less harmful strains used in vaccination. So Doty said, thank God he was wearing gloves. But also, there was no actual smallpox in these kits, which they found out after they sent them to the CDC. They came from physicians who donated them to the museum, who had used them to vaccinate soldiers on nearby battlefields and other people in the 1860s. So once these Civil War artifacts had been unearthed, Researchers were able to recover viral molecules from lingering scabs, blisters, pus, and other biological traces. Then the scientists used 21st century sequencing techniques to recreate five genomes of these vaccines. Liz, what did they learn from this analysis? They learned that these strains were actually quite different from what had been used in the 1900s. They were distant cousins of smallpox and they're not the cowpox we might think of. If you go back to 1796, when uh, Dr. Jenner noticed that milkmaids didn't get smallpox and thought it was because they had protection from cowpox. So it's still a mystery what exactly has been used down through now um, centuries to prevent smallpox. So they identified some strains that hadn't been understood before. So these Civil War era samples are now the oldest smallpox vaccine samples ever sequenced. How much do we know about the Civil War era vaccines and how they were distributed and, and how well they worked? We don't know a lot from this paper, but I think that the, the background is that they were valuable enough that one of the researchers told me they were almost considered gold. So they would be passed from person to person in these human chains. And they were highly prized in, in part there was huge demand because smallpox was such a visible scourge. It had a very high mortality rate. People who recovered were disfigured or even blinded, so that it was accepted quite readily among people in that era. And Liz, of course, you know, no conversation these days can be had without pivoting to COVID-19. So are there any lessons learned from the fight against smallpox that we can apply to the current pandemic? Well, the researchers were really reluctant to directly tie their work to the situation today. But of course, it's inescapable. They would 
say that we're still learning that distant strains of a deadly virus can be effective in providing protection. And they also wanted to underline just how important vaccines are. They really do work, even if it takes decades to understand exactly how. Liz, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Heisen Debonado and Teresa Gaffney, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which guest we should bring on for another middle school career day style interview. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And of course, if you like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.